Welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome to Season 5. Last week I went to Adelaide to attend the International Cleanup Conference 2022. This conference is held every two years. It was hosted by CRC Care in Australia. 600 delegates attended in total, with 500 people in person and around 100 joining online. People came from more than 28 countries. Before we get into today's discussion about PFAS, one interesting fact from the conference is, out of more than 350,000 artificial chemicals, only 21 are banned. Babies born today are coming into the world contaminated with their first baby poo containing plastic. There was no shortage of PFAS sessions to attend. In fact, there were so many, it was impossible for me to attend them all. However, I did manage to have some very interesting PFAS discussions and I'll be bringing you those chats plus other PFAS conference information over the next several weeks. One thing that was clear to me this year in relation to PFAS is that there was a greater emphasis on solutions with one of those being management and control of PFAS sources entering the environment in the first place. As well as some new challenges identified with PFAS management, one of those was many discussions regarding the new health advisories proposed by US EPA and the challenges that that will cause for those who analyse and regulate PFAS in Australia. There were plenty of remediation and management solutions discussed and I'll be bringing you some of those over the next few weeks. Today's guest is Professor Mark Patrick Taylor and we will briefly discuss his research that he did with firefighters which used blood and plasma donations to reduce PFAS levels in their blood. This research was published around April 2022 and received a lot of media attention. We will also explore Mark's opinion of what PFAS means in the environment and people's concerns around this class of chemicals and he will also talk generally about impacts of other chemicals in our world and what he says we can all do about it. Now to today's discussion. Hi Mark, could you please introduce yourself and your title and where you work? Yeah, thank you. I was a professor at Macquarie University in environmental science and human health for over 20 years and um, I took up a position as Victoria's chief environmental scientist at EPA Victoria at middle of 2021 and uh, at EPA I'm the executive director of EPA science as well as being Victoria's chief environmental scientist. So you're a very busy man then and you must have a lot of knowledge. I'm, I'm certainly very busy and think it would depend on who you asked for the last question. I think you do have a lot of knowledge when it comes to PFAS that's why I wanted to talk to you. What area of PFAS would you like to discuss today? Well we can I think we just talk about you know what PFAS means in the environment and for people and people's concerns around it and I think also I think you're interested to ask me a bit about the research that I did with Fire Rescue Victoria while I was at Macquarie University looking at the use of phlebotomy for reducing PFAS concentrations in people's blood. Absolutely and phlebotomy is our giving of blood or, or plasma. Thank you. Can we start with the firefighter research that you did? I'd be delighted to talk about that amazing piece of research. Yes, it is an Australian first. Is it a world first? Well, to the best of our knowledge, there's never been a randomised clinical trial looking at the efficacy of a treatment for uh, PFAS-exposed people. And everybody's got PFAS to some degree, it would appear. But firefighters are the most, in Australia, the most occupationally exposed 
group of workers to PFAS, to the best of my knowledge. And so we set out in that program to try and figure out whether the giving of blood or plasma would reduce PFAS levels. And Mick Tisbury from Fire Rescue Victoria called me in late 2017. That was after I wrote a report for the Minister for the Environment in New South Wales in regard to EPA's, that's New South Wales EPA's management of contaminated sites. That included Williamtown and all the issues that arose there. And Mick called me to ask, I've got this idea, do you think it would work? And I went, it sounds pretty reasonable because I understood how PFAS was bound to proteins and giving of blood would result in the removal or discharge of proteins. And I said to Mick, look, leave it with me. I'll go and talk to colleagues in medicine at the university, at Macquarie University, because it has to be a clinical trial. And, um, you know, obviously they need to run it, but let's, let's see what we can do. And we ended up getting the funding, running the project and getting the results, which came out earlier this year. Okay, who funded it? Metropolitan Fire Brigade as it was, then it became Fire Rescue Victoria. They provided the funding, effectively Victorian government, to undertake this study, which we ran through Macquarie University. So if you could just run me through, because we haven't got a lot of time today, if you could just run me through what you would write in the abstract and a little bit of your discussion and findings. Yeah, so look, in brief, it was a randomised clinical trial. We engaged the firefighters. We had three groups of 85 firefighters. One group was do nothing, the control group of 85. One group gave blood every 12 weeks of 85 people. And the other group, the third arm, donated plasma every six weeks. And the trial ran, the donating ran for 12 months. We did assessments of PFAS levels before and at the end and then we ran it on for another three months afterwards or so to see whether the reduced PFAS levels had stayed low. The short is, I think it was about 94% retention of the people who had enrolled or the participants in the trial had stayed in that trial. I mean, it's unheard of. And, And what I can say is the firefighters, hats off to the firefighters because giving of plasma is not pleasant. Giving of blood obviously is inconvenient, uh, but they stuck with it. People turned up, people donated, people did all the right things. And obviously they're a really motivated group of people because they've been affected, so we needed them to engage. And they they were just brilliant. And they did all of this during the pandemic, during the city which had suffered at that time the most stringent lockdowns during the COVID period. It's kind of a miracle, but, you know, it's a really strong reflection of how passionate the firefighters are about doing something about it. And it's hats off to Mick Tisbury for making this happen, facilitating, supporting it, and helping us make this project actually become a reality. And so, in short, if I was to give you the summary of the results, what effectively we showed compared to the control group, those that gave blood, they had about a 10% reduction in their PFAS levels, whereas those who gave plasma, they had about a 30% reduction in their PFAS levels over the 12-month period. And those reductions, after we stopped the trial, those reductions remained, i.e. we tested again three months afterwards, and those reductions remained. Well, that's great. No rebounds of any kind. Excellent results. I do have to ask, because the question's on my mind, the blood and the plasma that they donated, 
Does that go into the general pool for the population or is it thrown away? No, it's not thrown away. So the people who made the donations donated it through Australian Red Cross. It's not a contraindication if people have been exposed to PFAS according to their advice. You know, I'm not the expert for Red Cross. No, it's true. I've checked with Red Cross. They wanted to give the blood or the plasma because they already had an inkling that it might work. So we, we laid out what our rationale was, what the hypothesis was. Did the control group get a chance to reduce their blood levels once they saw? Once we released the results and told everybody, it's you know open slather. They can do as they desire. Excellent. That was the whole premise. You know, we published the results, we shared the findings, we shared it with the firefighters before we published it because we thought that was fair and reasonable. Did the media pick it up, Mark? Yeah, there was quite a bit of media coverage. And you must be very satisfied with the results of this? I'm most pleased for the firefighters who put in significant effort. They're emotional about it in the sense that they're concerned about it. It's obviously raised some concerns and anxiety amongst the firefighters. So, you know, it's really about them and about the science, not really about me. Uh, all my colleagues, we're just pleased we were able to complete a very difficult project on time, on budget, and produced results that are beneficial. I mean, even if it, was, it didn't work, it's still a result, but it did work, which is fantastic. I've spoken to Mick many times and I am looking forward to getting him on the podcast, but every time I've tried, there was the big bushfires and then there was COVID. He's pretty busy. He's pretty hard to catch. I know. I want to get face-to-face with the firefighters eventually, but um, it's really great to hear that research today. Just before we finish on that topic, what's the name of that paper for anybody who would like to read it? And where was it published? J-A-M-A, Network Open. The first author is Gazarowski. So, you know, the title of the paper, as I said, it was published in JAMA Network Open. The title is Effect of Plasma and Blood Donations on Levels of Plurfluoroalkyl and Polyfluoroalkyl Substances in Firefighters in Australia, a Randomised Clinical Trial. JAMA Network Open, which basically means you can, anybody can access it, and that was part of our plan, was to make sure that that research, which is effectively funded by the public purse, is accessible to everybody, include every firefighter or PFAS-exposed person, so they can look at it and go, okay, maybe I can do something about it for myself. That's fantastic because so many PFAS papers or even media articles are locked up. That's great. Okay, let's just move to, just in general, what your thoughts are on the current state of play of PFAS in Australia. Is that a too big a question? No, not really. I'm at the clean-up 2022 meeting and there's a significant amount of research being undertaken. I think there's a lot of uncertainty around dose response and the amount of work and the amount of money being put into PFAS and I'm looking at that going, is that really justifiable? Because we don't really understand what the consequences are. Now, that's, and I'm not trying to say that there are no consequences, particularly at high levels, I think that's pretty well established. The challenge that we have at the moment is that what we don't understand is what the, is the lower dose. Because we don't know that, we take, we're taking a really precautionary approach and we're spending a lot of money and a lot of effort cleaning up. What we do know that in, with respect to humans is that long-chain PFASs are falling in the, in the population. A piece of work came out of Queensland University that showed very clearly that's the case. Contrary to the long chains, the short chains are actually rising, which I, I do believe, as I understand it, that's a reflection of the producer of industry chemicals switching from long to short chains because it's only the long chains that are regulated. And, and the short chains, that means they go in and go out of the body 
much quicker than what the long chains do. The, the half-life is much longer, which means it's a greater opportunity to cause you know, sort of cellular or DNA damage if they're in the body longer. But what concerns me is what I sense is the population has been spooked by all of the media and about it's toxic and we're all being poisoned and you know we're, we're all going to die from PFAS. Well, PFAS levels are clearly falling. There's less of the long chains being used in the environment. And it's pretty clear that the people with the greatest exposure occupationally are firefighters. There are smaller subsets of the population around military bases, for example, or like the Longford refinery. Airports, fire stations, anyone who used AFFF. Probably not so much around fire stations, I don't believe. I mean, Fiskville's a bit different, but that's a fire training facility. But... It's really where people have been farming and using the groundwater at risk. There's been fire stations where they've had high levels in the fruit and vegetables that they grow. One was shut down. Right, that's at the fire station. That's true, it's on site. The main people affected with off-site around military bases where the stuff was just used in large volumes for training and was allowed to, or it seeped into the ground, joined the groundwater or got into streams and then went off base and they contaminated streams and soil off-site and then people have been producing food using contaminated soil or contaminated drinking water. And that's a deep concern. But I think what concerns me is that the population as a whole has been kind of spooked about PFAS when I think we don't have sufficient evidence to say it's that much of a problem in the wider population at this point of time. And I think that's kind of driven a significant body of work investigating the toxicity of PFAS, you know, forcing the cleanup, etc. But we know there's other chemicals in our urban environment. There's other chemicals that we use in uh, makeup, for example, pharmaceutical products that we ingest or we use, or it's in our foods, for example, the Teflon that we use in our cookware. I mean, yeah. if you look at the old Chemo's website, Teflon it's in clothes, eyewear, cookware, bakeware. Yeah. My point being is that domestically we're PFASing ourselves. And I'll take you to a very brief story. When my son started school, it's 2016. Henry starts school and my wife, you know, proudly lays out his uniform on the table for the next day. And on the uniform, on the shorts, it says Teflon. And I went, what's that? She goes, what, that, what, that, the Teflon, what's that? And I went, what do you think I've been doing for us? Well, and I said, it's a perfluorinated chemical. She went, oh. And I said, like, why are they using Teflon in school shorts? I mean, is that really necessary? So my point I'm trying to make is that as a society, as consumers, we have chosen to buy products with Teflon. We've been bored into this, that Teflon's great. You're sure it doesn't crease as much. We need to be conscious about the decisions that we make. We've been living unconsciously through the use of chemicals in our food, in our lives. Now, that's a good point. And also, when they buy furniture, they need to, they need to say no to the stain resistance that, that's put on furniture. Well, it's not just that. The furnitures, many of them are made of petrochemicals. You know, the polymers, they produce microfibers. Those microfibers can be ingested. I've done work in that space with my student, Nader Soltani. We make these decisions. We are industrial animals and we have contaminated ourselves. Okay, so solutions. Well, I think the solutions to all of this, is, and this came up at the conference and I thought it was a really good point. It's like labelling, like what's in these products? So we need to fix this problem, not downstream. So all the fantastic science that I've seen at this conference, the really excellent science about understanding, measuring, assessing and cleaning up, we need to stop it from getting to that point. So we need 
to think about what it is we're buying, why we're buying it, and, and what it contains. So the yeah. issue came up around product labeling, like what's in this product? So we could be thinking that what can we do about it? More natural products, not with unnecessary additives to them. I mean, do we need shorts and shirts with Teflon in? Probably not. We don't need fast dry swimwear. We can just use a towel. That's right. Do you need Teflon pans are great, right? Because your food doesn't stick. Not everybody pays attention to what's going on. I mean, case in point, I burn everything. But you can get other pans which will adequately do the job. My point being is it's the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, will help reduce the domestic PFASing of ourselves. We've done a small sample of looking at PFAS in household dust, and it's high. And I know Albert Yoaz at University of South Australia has done some, a greater number of samples, and he's found exactly the same thing. The PFAS in household dust exceeds, in some cases, the guideline values. But it's wow. not in the environment that we would normally regulate. We don't regulate as an EPA or a government agency inside people's homes. It's a bit like indoor air. We don't regulate for indoor air. So people should vacuum and wipe the dust up? You should do all of that. But people think about the products that they're going to buy because we know there's PFAS in makeup. We know there's PFAS in cookware, bakeware, eyewear, like I've already said. Guitar strings. <laughs> it's in our clothes. So we have to ask ourselves, what choices are we going to make? Why are we making those choices? And do we have alternatives? What's the government's role here, Mark? Look, the government can only do so much. This is a choice by people. So do you think there needs to be more education about how the general population can reduce their PFAS load? I think it's pretty clear that they need to make conscious choices about the product. The challenge, though, is, is that when you buy a product, you don't know what chemicals are in there. And some of the chemicals are proprietary chemicals that they've tweaked them and they've had a molecule or something, so they don't want to list them because it's part of their sort of patent. So that's a problem for us because we don't actually know what we're getting and what we're buying. So this is about full disclosure. So at least people can then say, I give full consent. They have informed consent. I know what's in that. Well, I don't really care. I'm going to buy my PFAS pants. I'm happy with that. Or Fred might say, well, I'm going to buy my straight cotton or straight wool shirt because I just know it's got no additives in it. And so I think it's about consumer choice but it's also about people being conscious or having the ability to be conscious about what's in these products so they can make a choice. But I think there's awareness because I still talk to people now that say what is PFAS so I went to buy shoes I ignored the hush puppies because I know about the history of hush puppies in the US with PFAS who knows if it's in the other shoes I bought I don't know. We just don't know. But I just ignored the ones I do know use used PFAS. You highlight the challenge there's you know, people are overloaded at the moment with information. People are overloaded and scare tactics uh, in some cases from the media or overblowing or over-exaggerating what the risks are. Let's steady down. Let's have a look at what the dose response is. Let, let's have a look at what things that we can do. So rather than shock and horror, it's like, okay, what, what actions or what knowledge do we need or what actions can we take that we can actually reduce and eliminate or minimise our exposures to these chemicals? And we can make choices. It's expensive, though. It costs, for example, organic food. We know there's a cost associated with it. That's unfortunate. And it does then, if it's organic food, we'll put it out the reach of some people. But in terms of providing choices, knowledge and information, full product disclosure would at least start that process. And labelling. That's what I mean in the labelling, full product disclosure. What's in there? 
what chemicals are in this product, have been used in this product, are retained in this product. And it means that mums and dads have a choice. Okay, I just published an episode today. You wouldn't have had time to listen. Professor Ian Cousins' paper got a lot of attention about we're outside the safe operating space of a new planetary boundary for PFAS. But some of the media coverage of that, which he got to speak to the truth of it, some of the media coverage was very much sensationalised about rainwater causes cancer because they found PFOA levels in rain were higher than the proposed new health advisories from EPA. That concentration they've proposed, we can't measure to that level at this point in time. But what do you think of those sort of headlines, you know, rainwater causes cancer? He didn't say that. It's not helpful. It's misinformation. The fact that there's PFAS in rainwater really says that we've been an incredibly effective species at spreading our detritus around the globe. Detritus? Detritus, the waste. We've done very well at it. We've been fantastic. We did it with mercury, we've done it with lead, we've done it with microplastics, we've done it with PFAS. Yes, babies are born with microplastics in their first poop. The thing is, we are industrial animals, right? We live in an industrial environment with the stuff that buildings are made of. Um, how those buildings have been made, the products and the tablecloths and the carpets, that, they're all industrial artefacts. So it, it should not come as a surprise that we have contaminated not only ourselves, but every corner and crevice of the environment with industrial chemicals. But the crux of it is, you know, what's the consequences of it, right? We know it's not good, right? In general, like contaminating the globe is not good. But what's the dose response? Yeah, dose response is something we're not hearing much about. No, we've not heard much about. So aside of that, that we do know that the earth is hurting at the moment. We know that there are significant metrics that show there's declining the number of species right across the animal kingdom. We know that there are issues with corals, there's issues with the oceans. You know, we know that we've harmed the planet. Now, what contribution PFAS is to that, I, I cannot answer that. That sort of indicates what we have done to the globe. So if I was to finish on a positive note, there's so much information out there for people. We should be demanding to know what's in these products. And it's not just PFAS, it's other polymers, it's petrochemicals. Let's have full disclosure so people can make informed consent. Let's ask the producers, does that need to be in there? And Peter Singer, famous Australian bioethicist, made very similar sorts of positive comments about you need to know where your food comes from because you want to know that it's being produced ethically. It's effectively the same thing about the products that we choose and buy. Are we responsible, Mark, for that? Or the government? Well, it's up to us as consumers to say, we want to know what's in this product. The government can only do so much. Are we to ask the people we're buying it from? Are we to write to Nike and say, what's in your shoes? Well, we want to know there's no PFAS in it. What's wrong with that? Is the PFAS in your shoes? Like BPA. So BPA is being removed from plastic. And labelled so we can avoid it. That's correct. So that's what I'm trying to say. So scientific pressure then needs to be turned into policy, which needs to be turned into action. And it's so much better if the companies go, yeah, okay, I get it and they get ahead of the curve rather than they're being told what to do. Because it's not unreasonable, it's not unreasonable for a consumer to know if there are any toxic chemicals in that product. And it will allow them to determine if there are, in their view, safe alternatives. Absolutely. Okay, is there anything else you would like to say? And thank you for talking with me. No, I'd just like to thank all of the scientists for doing all that amazing work in an amazingly short period of time and bringing awareness to this problem. 
committing their scientific lives and careers to trying to find solutions. And there's been some incredible work in a really short space of time. Incredible. By you know, industrial companies like GHDs and, you know, all, all of these environmental companies, EnviroPacific, OPEC, etc., to try and find a solution to a problem that we don't really want in our environment. And at least they're starting to talk about it. I had EPA in the podcast, I've had uh, ACOM and I've had GHD talk to me at conference, which is really great because up until now, I haven't been able to get them to talk in the podcast. And it's good that people are now happy to come and talk about solutions. People are working together. This conference, of people are sharing their ideas, they're sharing their knowledge. Of course, there's, com- there's competition, but competition in some ways is good because it's actually driving innovation, it's driving change, and it's driving solutions. Yeah, it is good for people to know that listen to this podcast that there is plenty of smart people in Australia and the world working on reducing the contaminants in our world. There's lots of people spending a lot of time doing that. It's a cost to them because they're probably working overtime. The people I've met at this meeting and all the other scientists I've met, they are deeply committed to better understanding what the problem is in order to remedy the health and environmental risks. And many hands make light work. Yeah, and this is a brilliant conference. So thank you very much, Mark, for talking with me today on Talking PFAS podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Mark. During the episode today, Mark mentioned some work that was done looking at reducing PFAS blood levels in humans from a researcher in Queensland. I actually interviewed Queensland researcher Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane about this in 2020. And you can listen to that chat in episode 19. Mark also talked a lot today about consumer choice and the need for people to choose carefully what products they buy. But he also shared the difficulty that without labels in people being able to determine what products have PFAS in them. In regards to this, I highly recommend a listen to another previous episode of Talking PFAS, episode 22. It's an interview I recorded in 2020 with Juliana Gluga from Zurich, Switzerland, in which we discussed her paper, An Overview of the Uses of PFAS. She and her colleagues identified over 200 uses for PFAS chemicals, including PFAS in ammunition, climbing ropes, guitar strings, and even contrast agents in MRIs. So you can have a listen to that one. And she also provides incredible supplemental information that is free. The next episode of Talking PFAS is another discussion from Cleanup 2022 Adelaide. This episode will publish on Monday. Thanks again for listening. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share the episode, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.